You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hi, it's Julie. Thanks for listening. As we continue our month-long celebration of Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, I am honored to introduce Carrie Haw. Carrie shares her experience as a professional bartender and how she uses her financial acumen to maximize profits while staying true to creativity and innovative libations. Carrie is a true leader and one of the 10 influential bartenders that participated in Liquid Love Letters from Los Angeles AAPI bartenders, led by Allison Iwamoto, where they created heartfelt cocktails that were tributed to their heritage, and they raised over $10,000 for Hate is a Virus. Now sit back, grab your favorite Haku Vodka Stories for My Sister cocktail, and get inspired. Carrie, welcome to Served Up. Julie and I are so happy to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be a good time. Yes, Carrie. So, you know, we, we've asked you to join us and we're super excited to feature an Asian American leader in the alcohol beverage industry for this month of May. Can you give us a little background of how you got into this wonderful industry of ours? Yeah, it was like a very circuitous route. I grew up, my parents were very focused on education. You know, I have very traditional strict Korean parents. So you know, I went to school for finance. And when I graduated college, I actually was in finance for several years. And, you know, it was just a very like soul sucking, demoralizing, unfulfilling job. You know, I worked at a bulge bracket investment bank, um, Goldman Sachs. And, you know, I was doing 80 to 100 hour weeks, you know, sleeping under my desk, like as an analyst, like really just slogging away. And, you know, the reason for it is not for love of like finance, but or anything, but just because it was the only acceptable profession that I could think of to my parents after being a doctor, because, you know, my whole family is doctors, uh, my younger brother, my older sister, my father, my mother was in the medical profession. So to them, that's kind of like what we should all be. And I knew during, you know, high school that I just didn't want to do that. I definitely was not interested in it. I don't like blood and guts and like looking at people's insides. And I was very good at biology and science and AP and all of that. I just really didn't enjoy it. So then, you know, my parents being very disappointed that that's not a route that I wanted to take was like, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, oh, well, I don't know, because what else is there? You know, and I think when I went to, you know, high school, it was this like prestigious boarding school where a lot of like wealthy Caucasian kids were. And finance was like a really, you know, like a lot of kids came from money where their parents were in finance. And so I was like, oh, maybe that's something. And so I went to college 
specifically for finance. And, you know, I was recruited right out of school and I did this job and it was just awful. I worked for very ignorant, racist individuals. So, you know, they were all older white Caucasian men who would say things like, oh yeah, our analyst is Oriental. Or, you know, I remember very vividly one of my um, managing directors saying to me, I know you were raised to fear and respect men like me. And I was like, what does that mean even? And I just looked at him and I was like, but I neither fear you nor respect you because you're a piece of crap. You like mother effort, you know? It was just really shocking. Like I, I, I endured this kind of environment for all of that time that I worked there. Very misogynistic, you know, very racist. They looked down on me, treated me like a slave. And it, it was just very demoralizing. So, you know, I, everyone was like, you have a dream career. And I was like, but do I? Because I'm really unhappy. And I feel like I'm wasting my brain and my effort on something that I just decided to walk away from that whole uh, industry. And everybody was shocked. You know, all my friends were like, are you crazy? Like you make so much money and it's such a prestigious job. And, you know, that's the bank everyone wants to work for. Why would you do that? And to me, I just felt like there has to be more to life. Making rich people richer is the worst. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they are the worst people and they're just so greedy. And it doesn't feel like I'm doing any good to the world at all. So then, you know, after I quit my job, I actually fell into like this kind of like conundrum depression. Like, what am I going to do? All of my life had been built up to this. And now I have nothing. Like, how do I start over? You know, and that was like a really big deal for me. Like, what am I going to do next? And, you know, I kind of like in the interim of like actually figuring out, you know, I worked in fashion as a buyer and I did that for a couple of years, but I knew that wasn't really like a career that I wanted to pursue. I was just really like, just wanted to see what it was like. And, you know, I felt like, okay, maybe I'll apply to get a PhD. And while I'm applying, let me just do something fun. You know, what was the last job I had that I really loved? And it happens that the last job I had that I like liked was I was a club bartender. Like I started out in a club when I was, you know, 21 and I started as a cocktail waitress and I was like super good at it and I loved it and it was so fun. But then, you know, the manager stuck me behind the bar because for some reason, customers like would like pick me up all the time because I was like little, which is like really annoying. And the bouncers got really tired of having to follow me around. So they told the managers, you got to put this girl behind the bar because we can't do this anymore. (laughs) So that's how I ended up as a bartender. Like I didn't even want to do it. I really liked cocktailing. I made way more money than the bartenders. Um, But, you know, that's just what they had in store for me. So I ended up behind the bar and this was like, you know, early 2000s. There was no such thing as craft cocktails. Like I was slamming out Cosmos, Long Island, Adiosis, you know, Mm -hmm. that was my that was my bread and butter, you know, but it was so fun. And I loved serving people. And I loved it when I would like create stuff behind the bar just from all the like thousands of liqueurs that were on the shelf at the time and put it in a martini cup and call it like my special martini. And, you know, the customers felt so special that I made something for them different. And like, you know, it was just like a good time. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll just pick up shifts bartending and then apply to PhD. You know, there's no, mm-hmm. I have no shame. Like, um, you know, I know that my parents are very prideful and I'm supposed to be, but I don't care. Like I'll pick up trash if I have to, like, you know, surviving is my MO. So I went back to the bar and I, I got a job bartending. And this was in Los Angeles because I moved back to Los Angeles from, you know, New York and Chicago. And this was a year that craft cocktails 
just started in LA or just began making an appearance. The appearance of fresh juices and this idea of the classic cocktail had just started popping up in different, like here and there. There was like maybe a bar on the West Side doing it. And then, you know, a bar that came from New York to LA uh, is very well known. But, you know, that bar opened and I just had never seen cocktails like that. And, Mm. you know, I started becoming fascinated with those because I love history and I love learning. And I just got really like famished to learn everything I could about it, you know, and I kind of fell into that craft cocktail bartending world. And then, yeah, I just never left. So, you know, going from, you know, totally changing my life trajectory to like, I'm going to be a scholar and get a PhD or whatever to like, yeah, I'm a bartender. That's kind of what happened. Yeah, it started in 2006 and I never returned to anything but hospitality. And now I find myself here, 2021. That's amazing. Carrie, you know, you just said that your family is pretty much all, you know, doctors. Um, And I can just speak from my experience going from, I I just skipped over college almost completely. I went, I dipped my toe in and I was like, this this ain't for me. It's not, you know, once I went behind the bar, I never looked back pretty much. But to this day, and I've been in the industry now for almost 30 years. So for a long time, I still have to explain to my parents what the hell I do. So yeah, no, it's your parents' reaction. You know, when you decide to go, you just took a totally left turn from your family. industry. There was a time when they just like refused to talk to me because they were so angry that in their mind, I threw away my education and all that time invested in studying and everything they poured into me to like make me um, have a prestigious job and the better life and all of that. La la la, you know, just kind of, I, tossed it aside. And in a way it was like me completely rejecting them and their values and how I was raised. So it was a really big shock to them. And even to this day, they kind of still, they, they really don't have an idea of what I do. I think they're still a little bit, just try to ignore it. They don't ever ask me about work. They're never interested in what I'm doing. You know, my sister will try and tell them, oh, Carrie's going to be on this TV show or, you know, she's making cocktails for the Emmys or like, you know, the Academy Awards. Like, it's a big deal. And they're like, oh, whatever. They, they never acknowledge what I do. But, you know, I understand my parents aren't drinkers. They don't know what a cocktail is. They don't care. They don't, you know, they're very, very Christian. They're very religious and very strict and to them, I pour devil juice and, you know, I am, I don't know, propagating hell on earth or whatever. And so it, I can, I, I think it is a little difficult for them to grasp that just like there are great chefs in the world and these sort of hospitality professionals, there are bar people that are involved with that as well that have to, you know, deal with alcohol. And so, I mean, like over the years, at least now they'll like, You know, when I make cocktails at home for my brother or sister, like they don't like yell at me for it or say, oh, you shouldn't drink or anything like that. But, you know, they they certainly aren't like into what I do or interested to learn more about it or nor do they ever come visit me at any place that I've ever worked. Mm-hmm. I could imagine that's difficult, right? I mean, I think specifically with that 
Korean culture, I'm very familiar with it as well, is that there's these big expectations for your kids to fall in these certain paths. And when you don't, there's that sense of disappointment, you know, but I think overall as well, and something we like to do on the podcast is really highlight the talent that comes out of our industry, specifically our bartenders. I mean, it's just the more I speak to people like you, you realize this just inept talent of that creativity, but also the educational part, right, is really understanding the history and the process and, and the makeup of the product. It's, it's not just making a cocktail, you know, and, and the more we can, I think, open people's minds up to, to everything that goes behind the work that's being done. It just helps the industry overall. Well, the other part of that, that I think makes me a very unique or puts me in a very unique position and has an advantage is because of my finance background, like I understand business, you know, Mm -hmm. not only can I make pretty cocktails that taste great, but I can make a pretty cocktail that tastes great that will come in at 12% and earn you this much over, you know, these sort of things that a lot of bartenders lack because they just don't have that background. Like at the end of the day, bar is a business. It doesn't matter how much fanfare you open with, how much press you get, you know, how, how like famous every bartender is behind your bar. If you can't make money, right? If you can't pay your rent, if you're not being profitable, if, you know, your poor cost is not right, if your cost of goods is not low and your overhead is too high, like you're not going to stay open. Yeah. And so, you know, having that duality of, yes, I am very creative. I know how to make really tasty drinks and balance cocktails. And, you know, I know a lot about spirits and I can, you know, educate you on the history of this drink or the history of that spirit or whatnot. But also I can run a business. Like I know how to read a PL and I know how to price a cocktail. And these things to me are not like, oh my God, this is like, I don't want to sit in front of the computer on Excel because that's boring. All I want to do is make cocktails. No, you don't, you, you have to have both sides. Otherwise you will never be able to run a bar and you will just be a shift bartender for your whole life, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. But, Mm -hmm. you know, like I definitely feel like I have talent to do more than that and be a manager or go be in an ownership position or make a profitable bar happen or help a group make a bar happen that will make money and stay in business, stay afloat, especially right now during COVID, you know? Oh yeah. Absolutely. You know, Carrie, some of the things you just hit on are so important because I think that a lot of people get so jazzed to open up that cocktail bar, even a restaurant, because they love to drink cocktails or they love to eat and don't realize the work that's behind not just creating, but breathing the life into the place, right? And keeping it afloat. And so with that said, can you give our listeners maybe just a little bit of your favorite advice, you know, some things that you have learned throughout your career that you think really anybody should really know that either aspire to open a cocktail bar or currently are running a cocktail bar? Well, I would say that if you aspire to open a cocktail bar, but you have no background behind the bar or in the bar business, but you just want to do it because you love cocktails, hire the right person to do it for you. And don't skimp on that money because the right person will set you up for success. And the right person is someone who can see your goal and then execute it in an achievable way that can have legs. Because a lot of times I see, you know, consultants being hired 
And they make it extra fancy and extra awesome because they just don't think about, well, when we're not here anymore, how are they going to keep this going? You know, and then inevitably, once that consultancy, you know, time is over, the bar just falls into shambles and then closes. I've seen it happen thousand, thousand times. So again, make sure that you hire the right person and, you know, definitely convey your goal, what you want, but really listen to them because they're the expert. That's why you're hiring them to like tell you what is feasible and has longevity when they're not there because they won't always be there. And then for somebody who does have experience, wants to open their own place. I see a lot of bartenders that are like, I'm ready to open my own bar. Do not do that until you realize that most of your job will not be behind the bar. Know that most of your job will be behind the computer, on the phone, trying to get things fixed, maybe in the bathroom, trying to unplug the toilet, like these sort of annoying things that you don't think of as part of a bar or running a business. Yeah, that's some, that's some really good advice that I don't think people really think of. And, you know, just being on the distribution side, we see that all the time, right? Like great concept, a lot of money dumped, great consultants hired. And then six months later, it's gone, right? So I I think you bring up a really good point as far as like having the financial acumen when you are in charge of a bar and managing a bar and, and managing costs. And what are some tips for you? Like what is kind of your rule of thumb when you're costing out a cocktail? I try to do cocktails individually costed out and then as a menu costed out. So you have an average cost for your menu and then you have your cocktail cost per cocktail. You know, for my whole menu, I definitely aim to try and keep it around 14 to 15%, but I'm very cheap like that. I want to make a lot of money. But, you know, on the menu, I'll have cocktails that are as low as 3 4% and then ones that are a little higher. Maybe I can only get it to 20% you know, to kind of like even it out. But in general, I try and keep an average, you know, at a certain goal. Of course, that's up to, you know, your discussion with the owner or what you want as an owner, your goals and how much money the bar makes compared to your kitchen. And, you know, it's just a matter of communication in that way. But, you know, that is, that's for me, my personal inner goal. Obviously, the great thing is as a bar manager, you do have opportunity to work with your distribution partners. And I definitely recommend that you take advantage of that. And you don't just like I know so many bar people who just totally crap on distributors and just write them off because they they think that's the thing to do. But honestly, your distributor partners are so key in, you know, your success and they can help you so much, whether it's with deals or, you know, last minute like requests or emergency, you know, we ran out of blah, blah, blah. And it's a Saturday brunch and I need this for, you know, our mimosas. Can you please bring me a case? You know, I've, I've definitely had such great relationships with my salespeople and I've depended on them heavily and appreciate them so much. And they know that, you know, come end of month, I'll call them and say, all right, what do you need for the month? You know, and that just really makes a difference for them. It makes a difference for me. This whole business is about relationships. You know, how you treat your team, how you treat your salespeople, how you treat your brand people, all of it matters. And our industry is pretty small. So you definitely don't want to burn bridges and then go to your next job. And it's somebody that you treated badly who's doing the hiring for it. You know, that I've seen happen all the time. I have too. I've seen people get run out of cities. 
So, you know, it happens. It, it happens. That's for another show, guys. But, um, <laughs> you, you know, got 86 out of the city. Wow. That, that's got to be pretty it, bad. <laughs> yep. Sorry for another day. But, um, you know, something that you mentioned early on was your experience I, really from the get-go when you were starting in your career early on outside of hospitality and really receiving, it sounds like the shit end of the stick as far as misogynistic behavior, definitely some hate and our industry can be toxic. It's not all gummy bears and rainbows. It's definitely not. And I know that there is this huge push for change right now, something that I have never witnessed before in my third, almost 30 years being in this industry, right? What are some guardrails that you would recommend that bar owners and, you know, anyone really in this industry that, that is a leader would like to aspire to be a leader put in place so we can really put a stop to creating a culture within our restaurants and bars that's toxic and not welcoming to all. I feel like that's a really like loaded question because obviously it would be really great to be like only hire like a team that's super diverse and has a little bit of like every kind of ethnicity and every kind of like sexual like orientation and make sure that, you know, everybody's different. But how do you balance that against hire the best people who's out there that is the best talent, who's the hardest working, who's going to bust their butt, has no ego you know, it's just willing to learn and work hard. Those two don't always match up, right? So it's kind of like that whole, uh, remember when you were being accepted to college, they stopped doing in the UC system, but it was like, you have a certain advantage if you're a certain race to get into college. Affirmative action. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, do you institute affirmative action for bars like when you hire or do you just blindly hire the best talent, the people that you truly believe are going to do the best? I don't know. That, that's difficult to say. But of course, as much as possible, I would encourage people to hire diversity and inclusion. But, you know, I've had a lot of people come to me and say, hey, do you know any Asian bartenders who are looking for a job? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I know a lot of bartenders looking for a job. Why, why you ask me if I know any Asian bartenders because I'm Asian? Like, I'm supposed to know all the Asian bartenders. And then at the same time, I'm like, well, yeah, I know all the Asian bartenders. But, you know, it's just kind of like, why you ask me that? Do you go to white people and say, hey, do you know any white bartenders looking for a job? Like, it just feels weird. Yeah. So, you know, as an Asian American in the industry, I happen to know a lot of Asian Americans in the industry because there's not many of us. So, you know, the ones that do tend to reach some sort of notoriety, I do happen to pay attention and know, and we try to support each other and reach out to each other and, you know, have our own support system. As a bar owner or manager, I personally would go for the talent. And so it's, it's, it's a hard thing to say. Obviously, you give preference where you can in order to make your bar very inclusive, but it would be very hard for me to just like do a checkbox of, okay, I'm going to hire one African-American. I'm going to hire one lesbian and one gay who is also Asian and then a Latin X person and then a woman who's white, maybe one white male, maybe, and then have a checkbox and hire my staff like that. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's too difficult. How do you do that? Yeah. 
I think that's the challenge too, is this idea that visually we need to see this mix. And and I think we have that, right? I mean, you walk outside, a community represents the community. And I think it's important that whether it's my own network of friends and who I'm around on the weekends, who I collaborate with at work represents that community. But I also think there's something around, and and I say this often, and I've really been thinking about it a lot over the weekend and just over the last few weeks, is that you don't have to be white to be racist. All racists are not white, right? So, oh, Asians are terribly racist. I mean, depending on which Asian you are, because not all Asians are the same race. Mm -hmm. For instance, in Los Angeles, because of history and the Watts riots and what happened to Koreatown, There are many Koreans who are extremely fiercely racist against African-Americans. And that is a huge issue within our community that really has to be addressed and, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of worked through because we have so much fear and resentment from the past. At least that generation that grew up in those times and experienced all the the violence and everything Mm -hmm. that happened, you know, like my, my parents are part of that. They first moved to Los Angeles and then here they are getting like, all this hatred and violence towards them from African-Americans and all their friends and places being destroyed and people being hurt and killed and whatnot. And so definitely you don't have to be white to be racist. That is not yeah. like a thing. Yeah. And there's, there's different levels of it, right. And, and within countries, within the world. And I think what's so important is that to your point is to have that open dialogue and to create that space to change the culture and to really value people. So to your point, like Hiring the best talent is not just the skill set, but it's also their mindset and the way that they think, right? And somebody that values inclusion, somebody that values the right skill set, they've got to have the financial acumen, they've got to be consistent, reliable, friendly. But also, you know, are you asking the people that you hire, do they believe in an inclusive work environment? Do they value other cultures outside of their own? And I think that these are questions that don't really come up in the interview process. That's true. A lot of like interview questions are always like related directly to the work, right? Do you know how to make an old fashioned? Do you know how to stir? Like, tell me how you would cost this cocktail, blah, 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 right? But never once have I ever gotten a question like, what is your opinion about your culture and how it relates to others? And how do you see people, you know, and... I think it's really important to find people who see people for who they are as an individual and their actual talents. Like, I think most people in the world, they just want to be affirmed and seen, right? I don't want to be like lumped into a category of like, oh, she's Korean or she's Asian and she's a woman. I would like people to say Carrie is awesome because this and this and this and this, like individual things that I can do, not because I'm Asian, not because I'm a woman but because I'm just me. And, you know, that's how I really try to see people for who they are, you know, what their talents are, what their skills are, how they react to the world, how they work with other people and how they relate to others and communicate. That to me is the most important thing in creating like a bar team. I think that's all the right things to to create a bar team. That makes me so happy that you said all those beautiful things. It's a dream, right? It's a dream. It's a dream. But I think that it's a dream that's that's possible. And it's something that you're that you do, you know, 
for sure. And it's, it's funny though, because like a few years back, there was that whole kind of Me Too movement that's still going on, but you know, it started a few years ago when it was a big mm-hmm. deal, right? And I would get a lot of like press stories, like people coming to me and asking me, what's it like to be a woman in the industry? Yep. And I was like, yeah, I'm a woman in the industry, but ask me how it is to be freaking Asian woman in the industry. Then let's talk, you know? Sure. Because people, for some reason, see my race before they see my gender. And it definitely places me in their mind without Mm -hmm. them knowing me, you know, countless times. I remember I did this cocktail video uh, for Women's Month for a, you know, really well-known Scotch brand. And I really didn't expect all of the comments that people left on the Instagram video. There was so much hate. And like, one of the things I had said while I was making my cocktail is, you know, early in my career, I was working at that very well-known cocktail bar that came from New York. And then, you know, they landed in um, Los Angeles and it was very well-known for craft cocktails. And those were the days when the dudes would like grow those ridiculous dumb mustaches and wear suspenders and like the arm stays. And that was the uniform. And I hated it because it's like so ugly. And like, why are we dressing like we're a speakeasy? (laughs) This is so lame, but whatever. We have good cocktails. (laughs) And, uh, you know, people would come in and they would see me behind the bar and they would see one of my fellow coworkers who happened to be a Caucasian male who was wearing, you know, the suspenders with the stays and had a dumb curly mustache that I like forever made fun of him for. And they would just, I could see them trying to decide who do we go to and zoom right to him every single time. Try not to take that personally, but like, obviously there's a decision being made there, right? This person looks more capable of making the drink that I want for whatever Mm -hmm. reason, because I'm a small Asian girl that's not wearing suspenders. Well, you know, I don't need suspenders to hold my pants up. And I said this during the video I was recording, all the comments that I read, and I should never read comments. I learned that then very quickly, like never read comments on social media about the things that you are posted in. Some of the comments were like, well, maybe if she was showing more tits, she would have, you know, gotten the customers to go to her. Uh, this is not true. This never happens. I always go straight to the hot girls. It's because she's ugly that they went to the guy. Um, I wouldn't trust her to make my drink either. She's like measuring everything, you know, like that's terrible. All these kind of just like hatred comments, like maybe if she got some boob implants, like she could have gotten some tips, all this sort of like stuff. Like she looks like a nerd. Of course, nobody's going to go to her. And a lot of it about my appearance, a lot about the fact that I have small tits or I'm Asian. And one one particularly like ratchet comment was like, well, I'd rape her, but I would have ordered a drink from her. Oh, my God. Like I'd break her. I want to rip her apart just because of my small stature. These kind of like very ugly things. That's violent. Super violent, very scary. And I was like, wow, this is crazy that people think that I'm lying, first of all, about the experience that I have behind the bar. Like I've endured so many different things. Bosses that, you know, are very, very, very wild, incompetent, but, you know, have their notoriety. So they keep getting positions. And Mm -hmm. I remember I I pretty much held it together for this one gentleman who was very well known in the cocktail scene. I do care about him very much. I love him. He never met ill, but. He's just the way that he is, you know, and he would boast about me to like all the brand ambassador friends that would come in. Everybody needs a little Asian to do all the work for them and make them look good. 
stuff like that, you know, and, you know, call me his little Asian and things like this, that in those times, I just thought that that's what I had to go through to, mm-hmm. to get where I wanted to get. Mm-hmm. And whether or not I like it, a lot of stereotypes are true where, yeah, I am really hardworking and, you know, I will not complain and I will do execute everything perfectly because that's in my nature. That's what I was taught to do. That's what I'm supposed to do. Right. I'm not going to make a fuss. I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm not going to ask for attention because we're humble people. We don't do that. I remember a lot of competitions were like a really big thing about five years ago. I know they're still out there, mm-hmm. but you know, for the prestige yeah. and all of that, right. I feel like it's got changed a little bit. And, you know, I, I started trying out for competitions and I remember uh, that gentleman who won every cocktail competition under the sun in the beginning days, he told me, he was like, I don't know why you keep entering these things. They're never going to pick you. You don't have the look. He's like, they're not going to let you be America's best bartenders. Like, don't waste your time. Oh my God. They're never going to let an Asian little girl be America's best bartender. You're never going to be most imaginative anything. You're never going to be, you know, world, whatever, world-class. Like they won't let your face represent that title. And actually he was right. That that's not a lie, actually. Mm. You know, it was very clear. There was a definite stereotypical look of all the winners every year, year after year. And like lately it's gotten better, but again, the whole nature of competition has gotten better, Mm -hmm. but you know, that was a thing for a long time. And I would get a lot of this kind of commentary and it was really discouraging. And I had no one to help me, no one to teach me. I just kept clawing my way through the muck. Like, I don't know, I'm just going to work hard and maybe somebody will notice, or maybe I'll get a job that's a step up. And I feel like I get passed over a lot. Just, well, this is a Latin concept. And we can't have you be the face of our bar. Mm. I've gotten passed over for bar managing jobs for that. You know, this is a whiskey bar. You, you, uh, I don't think so. You know, so it, it, it is really discouraging. And, you know, I never wanted to be just kind of like put in a corner of like, okay, I'm just going to work at like the Asian theme bars, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that, that's not what I wanted to do. Yeah, I don't know. It's been a, it's been an interesting journey and I think it continues to be interesting. I really never meant to be anyone who was considered a leader in the bar industry as an Asian. Um, I just happen to be Asian and I don't even really consider myself a leader, to be honest. I just know what's right. And, you know, I'm not afraid of people. And, you know, I think it was that moment when my boss at Goldman Sachs was like, I know you were taught and brought up to fear and respect people like me that I decided, no, I don't fear or respect any of you. And I'm just going to say whatever I want, whenever I want, because I know it's right. Mm -hmm. And if I'm doing something good, then I'm going to keep doing it. And for me, like hospitality is my life. It's everything. Yes. Again, stereotypical. I want to please everybody. I want to make everybody proud or happy, or that's my nature. That's how I was raised that's in my blood, in my being. And so hospitality, I'm very uniquely suited for. I want every single one of the guests that walk in my door to walk out happy. You Mm -hmm. know, I want to please them as much as I can when they're there. I want every single member of my team to love working for me Mm -hmm. and feel included and feel seen. And I want to have the best hospitality, best cocktails, best P&L, you know, it's just that feeling of like, I want the perfection Mm -hmm. that really drives me. And you know, especially during COVID when I, we just all got knocked on our ass, our whole mm-hmm. industry didn't right. matter if you're Asian or white or black, mm-hmm. we all got fucked. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, I, I feel like a lot of people left hospitality, a lot of things pivoted to more online and social media than actually in-person hospitality. And, you know, as bars reopen, this is our chance, man. We were becoming like really a toxic, as you said, industry of Mm -hmm. like where it was all about the bartender and not about the customer, even though people would say, no, it's about the customer. I didn't see that in action. You know, I saw young bartenders wanting to be bartenders because they wanted notoriety. They wanted fame. They wanted to win competitions. But I would see them at their bars treating their customers so badly Mm -hmm. or like not giving a shit and just looking annoyed. And I would wonder what, where's this how is what where's the hospitality in this Mm -hmm. and so I just feel like this is a great reset this is a great chance for a fresh start where people who are still in it who are veterans like you Bridget like you Julie like me and you know Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people have left behind the bar to become brand ambassadors but there are still some of us here who are actively wanting to be in the bar Mm -hmm. to be the leaders and show younger bartenders, all right, this is how you make proper cocktails. Yes. But more importantly, this is how you treat customers. This is how you act. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, it should not be difficult for a guest to have a night out. Like I don't want to work when I'm going out to relax. And it's so much work when you have to flag the server down for water, flag the server down for a napkin, flag the server down for a utensil. I need extra ranch. Okay. I have to flag them down again. I need the check. I did ask for the check. They dropped the card and wait, now I have to wait 20 minutes for them to come back and pick up the card. That's a lot of work for somebody to do Mm -hmm. when they're there at your place, paying their hard-earned money Mm -hmm. to have a lovely evening. Right. 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 And so teaching people mm -hmm. to anticipate needs, be there, pretty much know what your customer wants before they even know they want it and be there with it. So they're like, wow, what just happened? Everything is here all of a sudden. And this is amazing, you know? But I think one of the things that we're getting back to is in our industry, and I agree with you a thousand percent, we are all about hospitality, making our guests have a beautiful experience, a memorable experience. So they come back and become regulars and they tell their friends and we build our business, right? And I do feel that at some point we did get away from hospitality and it did become more about that star of the bar or whatever you want to call it. But I do feel like we are getting back to our roots. We are getting back to be that soft place to land for people who just want to put their feet up and forget about their day. We have a lot of work to do. And you said so much, you've said so much about going through um, just some awful experiences with people. And yet you're still here in hospitality. And yet you're still persevering and yet you still love it. Right. I'm such a glutton for punishment. I mean, is in my nature because at least you got out of finance. I think that was like anything was better than that. Right. Yeah. Anything's better than that. But, but we are getting back to our roots. I strongly feel that I hate the question. Like, what do you think the next cocktail trend is going to be? And I get that question often. And I always, and and my answer is always, I think we're just getting back to basics. We're getting back to hospitality, being friendly, letting the arrogance of being, you know, the, the star behind the, the mahogany, right. Go. That's and my just great concentrating hope, on know? our, on our guests. I, I do feel like, and we have this opportunity now, like you said, with this great reset 
and people crave it. They want it. They want to go back to their local bars and feel special and, and have that place. I don't know about where you are all located. I'm in Los Angeles. And right now we're like almost on the edge of like full reopen, right? You go out on the weekend and it is just slammed everywhere. People are so fatigued from being indoors that at this point, they don't even care. They're like, well, I'll just get COVID. I don't care. I just want to be out. I need to be out. I want to be in a bar. I want to be in a restaurant. I, I don't want to like order myself food in again for the thousandth time. Like people are definitely ready and raring to go. Mm-hmm. And I get it. It's very hard to hire right now because there's not a lot of bartenders who are willing to go back to work mm-hmm. under those conditions. It is tough. It's absolutely tough. It's so much easier to be like, well, I'm going to make less money because people aren't tipping because they're not sitting in front of me and I have to go out and serve them. Like I actually have to leave the bar and then I'm not going to make money and I can make more just sitting on my butt getting unemployment. So why don't I just do that? I find that is a big problem. Like hiring right now is a bit really big problem for management. And I totally understand that. But, you know, it's kind of like you got to find the people who no matter what are like, I just want to get back to work. I want to be, I want to bartend again and then find the people who are like, oh, so what that I have to work the floor and make the cocktails like that. Is that not what we do? Do we not serve people just because I have to walk the cocktail over to the person? This is a problem. You know, like I, I before pandemic, so many bartenders like I don't want to serve either. Like I just want to make the drinks. Well, yeah. that's that's a problem if you don't want to serve. Yeah, I think there's, you know, and I like that you said it's a reset, right? I mean, it's a reset for those in the industry that are working and and to really think about their value add and what they're willing to go back to. And it's also a reset for our customers. And and I'm here in Miami. So it's like, we never shut down. Everybody gave up about, you know, getting, you know, infected long time ago, but it's, it's crazy. It's so busy. And I think people have this new appreciation now of being out. I know I do for sure. Um, I've always obviously appreciated the industry, but even to another extent now, but I think I do want to go back to you saying, well, I didn't know that I was kind of seen as a leader. And, and I just wanted you to know that you really stood out for me, for Bridget and I, for both of us as a leader by just being vocal and being bold. Right. And I think that's the thing that I think really is lacking in our culture really is like speaking out. Right. Yeah. And I used to do it too, because like there would be a lot of controversies like with friends, like online, like fighting about the Me Too stuff and about political stuff. And I would just, even though I have opinions about it, I would just like, don't, you don't even get involved in that. That's that you don't want to rock the boat there. You know, in my mind, even at some point I'd be like, everybody just shut the fuck up and get back to work. Jesus. Like, don't talk about it. Yeah. You're wasting time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that mentality is something that I've changed a lot too, because if we don't talk about it, nothing will change. Yep. And if we're not vocal about our, our issues and what we face and our challenges, then it's our fault for not being seen. How dare we get mad that nobody sees us if we don't try to be seen? That's, that's ridiculous. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when a lot of the uprising violence started happening towards Asian Americans or Asians in general during COVID, it like truly was the first time that I was just like my blood boiling. Like I cannot stay quiet about this because I was a victim of it. The whole pandemic, I've had people spit on me. I've had people like yell at me and throw bottles at me on the street and, you know, tell me to go 
take the, my virus back home with me and you know like stay away from me you like chink da, 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 like all that kind of stuff all year long you know and I live in a city that's pretty diverse and you'd think that it wouldn't be like it's not like some podunk small America town where I'm the only Asian person you know but it was really prevalent so I wonder how in that small podunk town the one Asian person felt you know or what kind of abuse they went underwent and how isolated they must have felt about it and mm-hmm. you know how scared and so yeah I mean we were able to there is a group of bartenders in Los Angeles and within a span of two weeks we set up a fundraiser for AAPI we raised over fifteen thousand dollars and we literally executed this eight people in two weeks and we were kind of joking afterwards that like yeah no other race of bartenders would have been able to band together and do that <laughs> but you know it's kind of a joke but at the same time it's like Just us actually coming together and doing something together shows how powerful we really can be, right? Mm -hmm. If we bother to do it, if we're not just not trying to make waves in our own lives and we actually make a statement, we come together, we say, hey guys, this is something that we can do something about and we just can't be quiet. Mm -hmm. And the crazy thing is even in, you know, doing it our way, we were so bad about promoting it and then like louding each other about it afterwards and how much money we raised. Like we barely even put it out there how much money we raised or like, you know, most people afterwards like make big splashes about how successful the thing was and da, 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 da. We didn't, we didn't barely talk about it. We just kind of high-fived each other and was like, yay, good job guys. Well, we want to promote it here. You guys made $15,000 and, and donated that all. And that's incredible. And that's actually how I came you know, how I saw you and and came about and what a beautiful program, you know, the, the love letters from the AAPI bartender community. Could you tell us about how you guys created that? And then I want to hear about your cocktail and the story behind it. Cause I loved reading those personal stories behind each of the cocktails. And a lot of them were really nostalgic for me because I remember those flavors growing up as a kid, you know, in, in the Korean culture. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was the brainchild of one of my friends, Allison Iwamoto, who is a Japanese American bartender here in Los Angeles. And she's a very socially minded person. She really wanted to do something that would gather our community in LA together to raise money for AAPI. And, you know, we were very lucky that one of the people involved, he, during COVID, set up a cocktail delivery, you know, company. So we already had a vehicle through which we could get orders in and, you know, deliveries out. So it was really good. Like they worked together and we got the group of bartenders together where we decided we're all going to do a cocktail and we're going to, you know, sell our cocktails and each cocktail is going to be a love letter to someone or something that has made an impact in our lives. My cocktail was dedicated to my sister. You know, somebody dedicated their cocktail to Martin Yan of Yan Can Cook because they were the first kind of Asian person that they recognize on TV that really gave a name to Asian uh, chefs and things like that. You know, another one like pick their mentor or some pick their, you know, grandma or mother or all these sort of like inspirations. And we created cocktails specifically around those inspirations and sold them. And all the proceeds went to AAPI. And we were so fortunate that we had partners who just out of 
loving the idea and or maybe you know the owner of this beer brewing company was asian you know donated like 500 dollars just pure outright donation or a thousand dollars which was like amazing and you know we had um a brand or i would say like a group that you know supplied all the liquor and uh they're actually part of the sws family so beam centauri donated all the liquor all the vessels to that we packaged the cocktails in all the swag that came with it because you know they made it really special for the people who received it and you know we printed our little story about the cocktail and um yeah we just sold all of those and we all worked we all came together on the day and you know it's funny whenever i go to such events where everyone's batching together it's like pure utter chaos right you have to have a kitchen manager otherwise everything just falls apart i walk in and i mean it's quiet as a mouse and everybody's just like marked off their territory and just batching their own stuff there was no conflict no like i don't have this i don't have this everybody brought everything that they needed and like it was the most prepared like situation of all life i've ever like witnessed in my life and we all just helped each other Oh, you're done early. Here, let me help you bottle all your cocktails. Oh, you want me to write labels for you? And we just all really came together. There really was a sense of community, like we're doing this all together. And we were all there to make it happen and raise as much money as we could for AAPI. So it was really beautiful. And I think Ali is actually planning to do this uh, same sort of event, but instead of deliveries, it will be live at Republic in LA. Very cool. So, you know, we can somehow get another group of Asian bartenders to make their cocktails, but in person. So that'll be really exciting. Oh, so you could do like a, a, like a bar hop and kind of jump around and go visit live. Can you believe that? So that'll be great. And, you know, I will definitely be sharing details of that, but I'm just really proud of our community, really proud of Allie that she stepped up to do that. And of course, so willing to always like help lead any sort of thing like that and plan and whatever needs to be done, you know? We're all here to make a difference and, you know, speak up for ourselves for the first time that I've really witnessed or seen. And, you know, I'm not a quiet person when it comes to things like that. I have opinions and I know my opinions are valid and matter. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to put them out there. It's it. I do love what you just said, you know, working with the community and it felt like a community. And I do feel like that's where change will come from is when we all work together and don't take the bullshit. You know, but it has to be, it can't be just an individual with the weight of the world on their shoulder. It has to come from the community and it has to come from a, a place of togetherness. Right. And that's the thing is like apathy is a big problem in the Asian American community. For us, mm. a lot of it is just like don't rock the boat anywhere. And you know, as long as you're doing okay and there's nothing really going on in your world, like that's all you need to worry about. There's that sense of like apathy for social justice issues, apathy for things that are like happening in the world around you. If it doesn't have anything to do with you, stay out of it. You don't need to rock the boat there. Like Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter, stay out of it. Like that's not your issue, but it is because we contribute to it. We're known as the model minority riding the coattails of the white people. You know, we have gotten a lot of shelter in that shade and, you know, we help perpetuate. Mm -hmm racism against black people. So we have to recognize that, stand up, see it, open our eyes and be a part of life. Mm-hmm. We can't just be in, involved in ourselves and our own lives and making sure our family unit is okay because the world matters. We are a whole world and our industry matters. We are a whole industry and nobody, nobody will, ra- you know, like, what do they say? The same wave raises all ships. 
that's something I've learned over the last couple of years is having courage, right? And like you, I've learned to find my voice and I've learned to speak up and, and use my platforms. And I think that that's really important. And we have to do that for our greater community, for others that haven't gotten there, that haven't found their voice. That's especially important for me because if we don't do it, who's going to? Exactly. Right? And that's and the as- thing I always tell myself, like, all right, maybe this takes more effort than I really want to put in because I'm tired, you know, and, you know, why am I always the person who like has to do it? But if I then inside it burns, though, if I don't, who will? Yeah. Yeah, I could go back to finance and make a lot of money, but that's what that would suck. Yeah, I could maybe just take a brand ambassador job and leave the bar because being behind the bar is really hard work. But I don't stay here. Who will? If I'm not here to teach these younger people what true hospitality is, who will? Who are they going to look to as an example? It's it's like one of those things where when I'm behind the bar or in service, I'm so aware of it that I feel like I have to be like the most perfect hospitable human being because people are watching, whether it's the guest or a younger bartender. Like I don't want to set a bad example. I don't want people to get bad habits because they watch me, you know? And it's definitely a constant like thing in the back of my mind, like, and what we do and how wonderful that we are and how the bar to me is truly the last bastion of real connectivity. And the only thing that you can't do via Zoom but to have the true experience of a bar where you're sad, you go, you're happy, you go, you're on a date, you go, you're lonely. So you go, you know, mm-hmm. this community gathering place, knowing that you can walk in. And if you're somebody who's been there several times, you know, who's working, they're going to greet you with a smile and they actually think you matter. You're not a nobody. That's our job to make sure that our customers know they're not nobody. They matter. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's how you create that experience where people want to return because you made them feel special just for that moment. And yeah. And I, don't, I mean, I don't memory. mean to get, yeah, I don't mean to get philosophical and no, like, it, it's the truth. Like, I mean, yeah, bullshit, but that's no, really, I mean, it's really what it's, I, I feel it's the truth. And, and people are very loyal to the bars that they choose to patron. They love who is serving them their cocktails and they love the experience and the ambience. And, and it's the whole thing, you know, that, that, that's created by the vibe that the team, you know, the bar team is putting out, which is awesome. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love visiting new, like splashy, trendy bars, but I'll go visit like once and maybe I'll go out on a special occasion, like when it's like a celebration, blah, blah, blah. But I want that comfortable bar that I can go every single day. Mm-hmm. And I know who's working. I know the schedule of all the bars. It doesn't matter who's working because I'm happy to see any of them, mm-hmm. you know, they provide a safe place. I know I can get a good drink. They know exactly what I want to drink, how I want to drink it. No judgment. And just like a comfortable space, a safe space. Creating safe spaces these days is kind of like a buzz thing, right? Who's a safe space to talk to? Who, where is a safe space to go? The bar is, should be a safe space too. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, it, I agree. It's our job to make it that. It is. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? You know, it's crazy. And I will, I'll be perfectly honest with the both of you. COVID really affected my life in a sense that I got let go from my job. I've been unemployed since COVID. Yeah. I've done like little, like one-off projects, you know, freelance work here and there creating cocktails for, um, you know, brands or whatnot, but nothing steady. I find that I actually have interviewed a couple of places that I've gotten turned down for because 
you know, they want a specific look or I wasn't a specific look. And it's been really humbling. And I really want the opportunity to kind of create the bar that I'm talking about, you know, or to at least provide it to be a really prolific training ground for bartenders who are starting out or who are going to be back to bartending to reset the idea of hospitality to really be a shining lighthouse for that sort of bar. You know, this bar is truly a hospitable bar. I think given my business acumen and my creativity with cocktails and things like that, you know, I think that definitely I would do well in a very like larger setting where yes, beautiful craft cocktails reach about 0.001% of the population is awesome. But how do we take what we do, that beauty and that flavor and all the quality and take it more mass wide, you know, because everybody deserves it. Everybody deserves good hospitality and a good cocktail. You don't say, oh, I don't expect it because this is like a chain restaurant or I got to know what I'm paying for. No, everybody should expect good hospitality no matter where you go. You know, that's the name of our game. We're supposed to do it well. So I don't know, five years from now, I'd either like to be consulting on multi-groups or things like that, or working for a bigger group, doing several bars, you know, not just one location, but yeah, I don't know the opportunities, although people are like, they're out there. I've been having a hard time and I'm fully admitting that, you know, I'm, I'm humble. Like, mm-hmm. you know, people are like, oh, you could get a job anywhere. No, that's not true. It's not, you know, yeah. right now the job market's hard. People don't want to pay what people are worth. So it's kind of like a trade-off. Do I sell myself short and just accept anything because I need a job? Or do I really take my time and like wait for somebody to, to see that I actually have a lot to offer and I'm worth it? Yeah. Well, I absolutely think you have a lot to offer. You're definitely worth it. And I love that your vision is how do you bring your skill set and really provide that training ground for that next generation and then scale it, right? And, And be able to reach more people with this unique, exquisite thing that craft cocktail provides, but how do you reach more people and you know, it is humbling to hear that it's been challenging for you and and so many others in the industry. But I really hope that there's a glimmer of hope that we've met because whatever we can do to reach out there, and sometimes it, it is really digging, but I know that there are so many business owners and people that could use somebody like you that would be totally grateful to have somebody like you. And we definitely want to keep that conversation going because I truly believe somebody that has your experience, that has your skill set and your leadership, it's really about you picking and choosing what you want to do, right? And and what you want to get out of that role. Thanks. Uh, I really appreciate that. And honestly, like one of the funnest freelance projects I got to do this past year was there is an, you know, like a international chain of like fast casual restaurants that is really well known. And they are thinking to expand to cocktails and doing cocktails like to go or whatever in the States that they're allowed to, you know, kind of acquiring liquor licenses for their locations. And they wanted, you know, a signature cocktail menu, but stipulations were it has to be, you know, all the ingredients has to be seasonally available year round, uh, no house made complicated things, no fresh juice. So all pasteurized juices. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we need it below this poor cost or the, the booze can't cost more than this and very simple to execute for any dummy. Mm-hmm. So like that's a challenge, right? 
Yeah. But we want them to be really tasty, crafty cocktails. So that was a challenge. And it was so fun, though, because just the idea of, wow, this cocktail is really, really good, but everybody can enjoy it. Not just yeah. if you walk into a craft cocktail bar, mm-hmm. you can just do this drive through and be like, I want that and that and that. And you'll get a really tasty cocktail at home. Yeah. I mean, that was super fun. Like thinking about like, wow, uh, not just 0.001% of population is going to taste this, but 90% of the population could probably taste it if they wanted to, what if they roll out beef bars, you know? Yeah. So that, that idea to me is just fascinating. And it's like really cool. I'm so glad you shared that with us because I think there's definitely a need for that. And I'm so glad Bridget asked you that question so that we could learn that because there's definitely a ton of opportunity and we're entering a new era after this COVID reset. It's a new world, um, not just with opportunities, but I think valuing the bar, the cocktail, you know, hospitality is a real core of our communities the opportunities are endless. And we're just so happy that you took the time out to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of just like me rambling, but you know. No, we love it. We love that you're just so open and transparent and just to the point. And, And I knew that about you just from seeing how vocal you are and we need leaders like you in the industry. And Mm -hmm. I'm sad to hear some of the experiences that you've gone through, but I'm also very fortunate that you've shared it because sometimes, you know, we need to hear the hard truth in order to really impact change. And we need leaders like you to help us do that. And Bridget and I are here with you all the way through. Yeah. No, thank you ladies for having me and for doing what you're doing. Like this podcast, I've heard several of the other ones and I think it's awesome. Like it's such a good platform and you're really affording people the opportunity to really speak their, you know, experience and their truth. And again, it's, you're creating a community as well. So I really appreciate the both of you. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to wish you on behalf of Julia and myself, great health and so much peace. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers.